Good evening. Welcome to the fifth week of the 1984 Rare Book School. The pace of life around here this summer has really been extraordinary. Some of my students have heard me tell the old story of the tourists who were visiting a fish house in Maine and discovered to their horror that the proprietor was throwing live lobsters into boiling water and complained that this was cruel to the lobsters. But the proprietor thought about it for a moment. And she said, oh no, they're used to it. <laughs> well, I see a great many familiar faces here and it's always a pleasure to have you. This week, we have, in addition to tonight's lecture, Paul Banks, sitting in the back of the room, speaking to tomorrow night, and th there, are, there are some seats back here at the back, and uh, Stan Nelson, the specialist in the Division of Graphic Arts who works with Elizabeth Harris, sitting in the back of the room next to Paul Banks at the Smithsonian, doing a lecture demonstration on hand typefounding, which we will augment using our large size video screen in room 505. That will be Thursday night. There will be a reception immediately following this lecture in room 523, to which you are all cordially invited, and I'll have more to say about that after this lecture. Our lecturer this evening is William Walker from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, who gets, in addition to your welcome, the usual T-shirt. Before I start talking, I'll be sure that I'm properly wired and... Uh, oh, here's, here's the light. This is marvelous. I'm talking about special collections at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I've chosen to give this the broadest possible interpretation uh, because... Uh, uh, not to be overly obvious about it, the Metropolitan is a cluster of special collections, and I hope to uh, dramatize that a little bit or to, to uh, stimulate your interest in the breadth of collections that there are there, uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll speak in generalities a bit to begin with and then talk about libraries. There, I'll get to that point directly. The Metropolitan Museum is one of the four largest art museums in the world, along with the British Museum, the, uh, the uh, Louvre in Paris, and the uh, Hermitage in Leningrad. Uh, we were number four, and we are trying harder. I think we're second or third now, I'm not sure. And uh, last evening, I, I had a horrible thought. Are we largest in floor space or the number of, of, of accessioned objects? I can't tell you. Uh, in any case, uh, the Metropolitan Museum was incorporated in April 1870, and the charter at that time states that the museum was founded, quote, for the purpose of establishing and maintaining in said city a museum and library of art, unquote. The museum opened shop on Fifth Avenue in a mansion downtown, and in 1880 moved to Central Park in a building 
designed by Calvert Vaux, who was one of the architects of Central Park itself. Uh, today, the Met's the largest art museum in the Western Hemisphere. Its building is four blocks long, and it covers 1.4 million square feet. I, I estimate it's four blocks long, two blocks deep. We're turning around a bit here. I can't tell if that's in focus. Please let me raise your hand or call out if you're having a problem with the focus on this. Uh, the art collection numbers more than 2.3 million objects, covering 5,000 years of human history. The collection is administered in 18 curatorial departments. There are about 4 million visitors annually. This is another plan which I show uh, simply to, to uh, give you an idea of the complexity of the building. There's more to it now. Some of the green spaces in the center have been filled in with more wings. This was about 1970, I think. There are about 4 million visitors annually. There were 4.5 million in fiscal 1983, for which the museum mounts an average of 30 to 31 special or changing exhibitions throughout the year with these splendid banners over the front entrance. I think right now is the first time in, in a number of years that the three banners are all for permanent installations. The director was quite pleased at that. The range of our collections is encyclopedic. This is the Great Hall, the entrance lobby, uh, designed by Richard M. Hunt, which was built in the early part of this, this century. I'm going to go through this very quickly. Bear with me. This is simply to give you an idea of the sweep of the building. Again, this is the ground floor. When you come in to the main floor, you will see the library. get back to that. We'll get back to that in some detail. Second floor, the painting gallery, some of the Islamic, Greek, and Roman. Uh, now I'm going without very much commentary to take you on a walk, walk through some of these galleries, starting with the Egyptian galleries. Egypt, I think the Metropolitan is uh, unique in having uh, or within the Metropolitan, the Egyptian department is unique in having all of its collections on view. There are no storerooms, there's no storage in a warehouse across town. All 40,000 objects are on view in 32 galleries and nine study storage rooms, the last of which were opened in 1983. It's the largest collection of Egyptian art on display outside Cairo. The requisite mummies, they have to be in every Egyptian collection. This is one of the study storage rooms, I believe. There, these are, are uh, pot shards, small fragments are all stored and on display so that the viewer, or the, the student, the scholar, can have ac visual access to them at least without any uh, recourse to uh, curators at that point. Uh, at the far end of the, the, that wing is the Great Temple of Dendur. Then again, coming back to the other end of the building, this is the uh, Cypriot Hall on the way to the uh, restaurant. This is one of the Greek and Roman galleries. We have quite fine collections now in Far Eastern art. This is the Douglas Dillon Gallery of Chinese scroll paintings and calligraphy. The collection is large enough, fortunately, 
uh, that it can be uh, shown in rotation so that none of the works of art have to be exposed uh, to light and heat for too long a time. There, this is the uh, Brook Astor Courtyard, which is a, uh, a, a simulation of a, a Chinese scholar's court. This is the treasury in the medieval department. Again, as, as we run through this, bear in mind that, that uh, I consider each of these to be a study collection of a sort, and uh, that almost each one of these departments has a curatorial departmental library, which I'll speak of again. This is uh, secular art from the Middle Ages, recently installed. Arms and armor. Musical instruments. Temple of Dendur again, but with a, a, con a, I think it's a gamelan concert, Indonesian instruments, which was arranged by the Department of Musical Instruments, which brings together sort of a nice uh, uh, pulling together of two very different cultures. The uh, newest wing of the museum is the Michael Rockefeller collection of African, Oceanic, and Native American art. This is an African gallery in the Rockefeller wing, Oceanic art with house posts. American Indian. But I've been sliding painting, and since painting galleries are one of my favorites, personally, uh, we'll do them now. This is for fun. I think this is sometime about 1910. A costume expert could tell us for sure. But uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the next instance, I think this is called ar art appreciation. <laughs> You point to the picture you like, I think. I see some Winslow Homers here, which are rather nice. Uh, I'd like to think that the next slide is a reunion many years later of the same group <laughs> coming back to see more. This time, only the, the docent is pointing. European painting gallery with the Veronese in the background on the left. Raphael. And then the 19th century galleries in the André Meyer uh, collection, the André Meyer galleries, uh, in which we can show our collections of Manet, Van Gogh, Cézanne, Renoir. There's Madame Charpentier and her children being copied. Sculpture, Rodin, in that same gallery. In the American wing, I see a, a um, Gilbert Stewart in the center, and that may be a trombone on the far side. A survey, again, the American wing is large enough to be a museum in itself, 19th century, I think. American decorative arts, 20th century. 20th century is uh, one of the newest departments of the museum and is growing like wildfire. There is a construction program now at the southwest corner of the museum uh, on top of the parking garage. Uh, a large percentage of the space in which will be given over to 20th century art. And, and applied arts, decorative arts. This is an exhibition of a print show as a token to remind us of the separate collection, the sec separate curatorial departments of prints and photographs and of drawings. And this is a, 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 a mu another museum within the museum, uh, which seems to happen when museums get as large as the Metropolitan. This is the Robert Lehman Wing, that wonderful red uh, fragment you see toward the right is a part of the Calvert Vaux building you saw a black and white slide of, which is left exposed in the Robert Lehman collection. The Robert Lehman collection is a, is a survey from, I think, 15th century to the 20th. This is an earlier room. I think it's uh, Flemish. Again, this is uh, from the Lehman collection. 
uptown above us is the cloisters, which is, uh, which is but a department of the Department of Medieval Art. And then the Costume Institute. Now, the Costume Institute is uh, um, a very special and in some, t some ways probably a controversial department. Uh, I think it came, it came to the museum in 1946, and I think for a lot of long time the curators thought, well, it's really not a curatorial collection, but believe me, it is. Uh, and I'll show you a few more slides uh, to advance my theory uh, that this is uh, uh, a study collection very much, very similar to a library or an archive. Uh, these are, are from a 1977-78 exhibition uh, called Vanity Fair, I believe. And I thought this was ladies' dresses until I saw it projected as lingerie. Sorry about that. And this, I believe, is gentlemen's robes and, with the, and turbans. Uh, men's costume is something that uh, is relatively scarce. Uh, men's old clothes seem to get thrown out rather than being given to museums. Uh, shoes, a sampling, again, a study collection. Uh, it's a library of, of shoes, if you will. This is a, a former curator of that department examining a, a piece of costume. They have quite a, uh, a large order to re repair and preserve the costume. And it's stored in ideal conditions like this. I suspect that the storage collections, storage space in the Costume Institute is superior to their exhibition space. But uh, this is uh, cases designed specifically to display costume. There are drawers below for shoes or, uh, or scarves or accessories. This is quite an extensive collection. But to show you that it isn't all beer and Skittles at the Met, we have storage uh, storerooms that nobody wants to own up to as well. And this is an example of that, um, that sort of thing. Uh, from all of this, um, what makes a museum go? Well, the, the classic uh, activities that take place in a museum are, are the acquisition of a work of art, the cataloging of it, the preservation of it, the exhibition interpretation of it and the publication through interpretation through publications. The people who do these things are the ones who make the museum function, and they happen to be the principal constituency of the libraries. They're curators. This is Mr. von Bothmer from the Greek and Roman department. Curators from the Department of Medieval Art and European Sculpture and Decorative Arts consulting with the editor for a publication on the Vatican. The museum employs about 1,360 full-time staff, of whom some 90 are curators. Uh, the curators are literally the caretakers. They're responsible. They're the uh, elite of the staff as well because they're the, the, uh, the connoisseurs and the intellectuals uh, whose wisdom uh, support, the, support and enhance the collections. In addition to curatorial duties here, uh, Met curators some, uh, have recently acted as faculty in art history, in costume studies, in museum administration, in art conservation, in a number of universities, but especially at Columbia University and at New York University, the Institute of Fine Arts. Our second big category of, of, the, of library constituency after the curators are the educators. And I had a little trouble finding a slide of what does an educator do. An educator talks to people in galleries, but they do a lot more. But this is the most visible aspect of them. The educators talk about the works of art, and I'd like to think that sometimes the works of art talk back. 
I'm sorry, getting heavy. Another part of our constituency, let me speak about, the, uh, before I go on to this, uh, I'll even reverse, we'll go back to the, to the edu educators. There's educational activity in the museum at all levels, from elementary, literally, school children, and from uh, work for the, uh, orientation for the layman, to advanced research. The education programs of the museum reach annually about 1.3 million people. There is, among the departments in the education department, an Office of Academic Affairs, which is concerned with research at the graduate and postgraduate levels. The museum annually administers about $290,000 in grants to approximately 30 visiting fellows. Uh, they are usually pre-doctoral or post-doctoral uh, researchers. There are also graduate interns and summer interns, college undergraduates and high school programs. Top topics of embrace cover every conceivable topic that you would have been suggested by what you've seen so far. And fellowships are awarded to students from in a recent year from Brown University, Columbia, New York University, Princeton, Harvard, Rutgers, Delaware, and so on. Now for the editorial staff. The museum has a staff of its own editors. They're about eight full-time. These are proofreaders getting a catalog ready for production. The Metropolitan's Press is a member of the American Association of University Publishers. The museum publishes about 30 titles a year, scholarly and popular, including bulletins, exhibition catalogs, monographs, an annual journal, and annual reports. Now, the end product of that is, among other things, selling. And this is, a, I think, maybe not very flattering view of the Metropolitan's very handsome bookstore uh, right behind the Great Hall. But there is a bookshop in which uh, all the publications of the, of the museum's press and many other books on related subjects can be bought. Now, for all the works of art that are in the museum, how is control maintained? There is a catalog department. It's a relatively small, has a relatively small staff. But that department is a depository for the catalog information that's generated by curators. That information is put on three by five cards. We're not automated yet. Uh, and for each record, for each object that is recorded, there will be an access by the accession number, access by the maker or artist or author, if there is one known, and by the material or medium. And attached to that record is uh, very often a bibliography. This is a record for the Raphael painting that you saw earlier. They attempt to keep a current bibliography of references to it and also a uh, uh, references to uh, the places that has been exhibited. I think that Raphael is not going to be lent to traveling exhibitions, but that department is, is one of the hidden resources. It's a special research facility that I think not many people know about because it is the fullest bibliography, includes the fullest bibliography of the things in the Metropolitan's collections. It's an invaluable source for the researcher to go to get a bibliography before coming to our library. I, we only wish it were next door to us. It would make uh, life better for all of us. This department is available by appointment Tuesdays through Fridays, 10 to 12 and 2 to 4. It's hidden down on the lower floor of the building and would really require a guide to get you there, I think. Museum's also engaged in the business of preserving its own, own collections, and there are four conservation departments. This uh, studio for the painting preservation would do proud any artist, I think. 
It's really quite an elegant and recently done space, but there is also a chemistry lab connected with it because conservators must be chemists as well. This is a view of the paper conservation laboratory. The objects conservation, and I assure you he's not carving that. I, <laughs> I thought perhaps he might be making it, but I think he's repairing it. And textile conservation, and I think there's some overlap between textile conservation here and the conservation of costumes. I believe that's the end of the first carousel. Now, supporting the research of visiting fellows, the research cura resident curators, educators, and other research staff is a network of libraries within the museum. We also have thousands of outside scholars who come in. The combined library resource uh, numbers, I don't have exact figures, over 350,000 volumes, and there are over 880,000 photographic images. I think we're probably close to a million photographic images. These are housed in a central library, the book library, so-called, a separate photograph and slide library, and over 20 departmental libraries. This, again, is the charter I quoted from, uh, which refers to uh, a library. The, as I said, the first library was opened in, in uh, 1880, with a, and as of the report of that year, they had a grand total of 196 books and pamphlets. The library wing, uh, which you see here, was opened in 1910. It's designed by McKim, Mead, and White in what was called, what I see continually referred to as, quote, classic style reminiscent of the Basilica at Pompeii, parenthesis, restored, parenthesis, close quote. I haven't done my homework to find out what the Pompeii Basilica looked like, but I worked in this library back in the 1950s, and it's really quite a handsome library. It was not workable, unfortunately. I think if the preservation movement were as far, had been as far then as it is now, maybe we'd still be using it uh, with some modifications. I don't know. Here's a more recent picture, and I think one of the uh, intriguing things about this is that the then director of li chief librarian, James Humphrey III, is seating in the read-it room, uh, along with some other people that I recognize from when I worked there in the 1950s. Well, the collection, uh, the 1910 wing was added to in 1931, but by 1957 it had so far outgrown its space that uh, 10,000 volumes were put into storage. So plans were begun for a new library in the late 1950s, whose exterior was this. And in the good old days, this exterior, from inside there, you look straight across a parking lot to an uninterrupted view of Central Park, which was terrific. It's completely closed in now. There's a courtyard outside there, and then two more wings of the building between you and the park. But uh, it does preserve some of the old... Uh, Amenities. This is a, uh, a 16th century Spanish Renaissance patio, the Veles Blanco patio, which was given to the museum by George Blumenthal uh, after he had had it in his house. That must have been some house. <laughs> uh, but you enter through this uh, patio. Here's the front door of the library. And then you get into the modern wing. This is a view as you come in. This is a recent exhibition uh, there. That's another view, card catalog. Libraries tend to look alike when you, when you see pictures like this. But believe me, these are all the met. That, I think that's a busy reference library and blurred in the background there. 
our circulation desk to our two of our librarians at the at the reference desk we have six librarians who take turns doing reference work five of them do cataloging the sixth one is a systems librarian so uh, there when you use the the Watson Thomas J Watson library you see a number of new faces I failed to tell you that it's called the Thomas J Watson library it was when it was opened in 1965 it was named after Mr. Watson from IBM who was a trustee of the Metropolitan from 1936 to 1951 this was the reading room with the Gobelin tapestries and when hard times hit and we needed wall space the tapestries went and shelves uh, were put in in their place but those are shelves on which readers can reserve books that they're using a curator at work this is an old view of our periodical reading room it's begun to fill up since then this is one of a, a former serials librarian at the cardex this is our current serials librarian with a view of some of the display shelves and before the bindery shipments went out it began to look like this this is a volunteer working at our card files in the background you can see two Arlen terminals uh, we our card catalog was published in book form this is not an encyclopedia salesman uh, the catalog was published in book form uh, in two editions by the GK Hall company in Boston this is uh, for the 48 volume second edition which was published in 1980 and for which one supplement has been published but it's a you know you all know the GK Hall format it's it's our complete card catalog as of 1978 or 79 I don't know what the cutoff date is but we have gotten into Arlen as a, we are a special member of research libraries group and we are now cataloging all of our new cataloging in the Arlen network if you've seen one book stack you've seen them all but this is ours the, we have two levels of book stacks an estimated capacity of 300,000 volumes that's really not a very good slide of a carol but that's a, st a private study carol there are 93 study carols in the library 34 of them have windows like this one looking out into the courtyard and that's uh, a reference to the fact that we have uh, uh, one uh, full-time restorer who works with volunteers and some per diem staff uh, working to preserve the Watson Library collection now whom does the library serve and what does it contain I can turn this off can I should we leave it on and let it cool all right all right whom does the library serve and what does it contain uh, it serves that res resident constituency that you've already seen uh, a token of as well as visiting graduate students visiting professionals in the art field whether they are themselves artists or designers art historians writers of art uh, work workers in auction houses and such the use of the Watson library in 1983-84 uh, is indicated by the fact that 28,000 people signed the register in, during the year. Of those, 19,500, two-thirds, came from outside the museum. So we're not just a, museum, uh, just a staff library. During that time, 147,000 volumes were circulated. That is, they came up from the stacks, were used in the reading room. Some of those may be a total of 15,000 are signed out to curatorial offices. The library is open to researchers Tuesday to Friday, 10 to 4.40. No appointment is necessary. We have over 250,000 volumes. Uh, we estimated that of those, the title count is maybe 190,000 190, titles. 
uh, we've not separated the count between monographs and serials, but a recent count of our serials titles, current and inactive, comes to almost 2,200. Of those, we know that about 1,400 titles are active. Our monograph collection, I suppose I could give you, uh, for instances, uh, a library that's been in business for 100 years and that has been a working library for as complex a, a museum as this has a, and has been favored with uh, adequate budget much of the time, not always, uh, has a wealth of, of monographic material. We have uh, the various corpora, such as Corpus Vasorum Antiquorum, of which we get two sets. One copy goes to the Department of Greek and Roman Art, the other stays in the library. The Corpus Antiquitatum Aegyptiacarum, Corpus de Minoitian und Mechanician Siegel, Corpus Signorum Imperii Romani, and the Corpus Vitrearum Medii Ivy. Bear with my pronunciation. I think a second copy of that Corpus uh, Vitrearum of stained glass is uh, housed in the departmental library at the Cloisters, which I'll refer to again. The museum has the serial publications of many learned societies, and I have a list of them here, but I, I think it's uh, an essay in futility to stand here and read lists of organizations. But I've, as an example, the Society of Antiquaries in London, the Société Française d'Archéologie, the Fondation Égyptologique, Reine Elisabeth, Israel Exploration Society, and so on and so on. We have all of the standard journals. We have most. We have strong collections of uh, museum bulletins and annual reports. We also have some things I might not have expected to see, such as little magazines, uh, which document uh, art in New York in the 1930s and 40s, in some cases. The collection of exhibition catalogs and collection catalogs is a major component part. It's a co major component of any art library, and it stands to reason that it's important for us as well. This is enriched by exchange of publications which we maintain with 500 institutions around the world. We don't have an exact count, but recently I estimated that we might have about 80,000 exhibition catalogs on all subjects classified throughout our classification system. Those include runs of the Paris Salon catalog, some of which are a real preservation problem, and the century-long runs of the exhibitions of the National Academy of Design or the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and many European and Asian museums. We have large collections of auction catalogs. We subscribe currently to, to the complete output of 17 auction houses in the U.S. and Europe, such as Christie's, Sotheby's, and so on, Hotel Drouot. We also get selected auction catalogs from at least 15 additional houses. We estimate the current output of auction, art auction catalogs to be about 4,000 a year. Our back file is estimated to be 7,000 bound volumes containing a total of between 50 and 70,000 individual catalogs. Recently, that's in 1980, the Metropolitan began cataloging its uh, auction catalogs in an online catalog with the acronym SIPIO or SCIPIO which is Sales Catalogs Indexing Project Input Online. I'm sure the acronym was chosen first. Uh, this is a, uh, an online catalog. Of, uh, it's a special database of Research Libraries Information Network, or ARLIN, and it's, a, uh, it's an online catalog of the recent holdings of the libraries at the Metropolitan Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Cleveland Museum of Art, and most recently the J. Paul Getty Museum. It's a special database in Arlen which can be searched by any library that has an Arlen terminal. 
Scipio uh, contains now records of 23,000 catalogs that are held by one or more of the four libraries. The microform collection is small but growing. It includes all the auction catalogs from Sotheby in London from 1734 to 1970. And we have on fiche a, uh, the De Deloine collection, which documents art in France, 1675 to 1808, and is copied, is filmed from about 2,000 items in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. The manuscript collection is relatively small. Many manuscript or autograph materials relating to the museum and its collections are housed in the museum's archives, which is totally separate from, separated from the library. We do have an estimated 3,000 manuscript items. That translated into seven linear feet. That's pretty modest, I think. But of particular importance are the notebooks and diaries of Samuel P. Avery, who was a founder of the museum and a trustee from 1872 until his death. A collection of 850 autograph letters addressed to Sir Richard Westmacott, an architect in England who did, I'm sorry, a sculptor in England who executed statues for St. Paul's and Westminster Abbey. These were letters addressed to him and to members of his family, and they're bound into five volumes with a one-volume index. We have scrapbooks of printing examples by Samuel P. Avery, a collection of scrapbooks on American illustration compiled by a lady named Helen Card in the 1940s commissioned by the Metropolitan. And I, think she, I don't know what her sources were. I don't, really don't believe she cut up books that were uh, in a, anyone else's library, but she compiled a five-volume scrapbook of illustrations by Frederick Remington that were published in various magazines and books, two volumes of illustrations by Edwin, Edward Austin Abbey, three volumes of Arthur Keller, whose work I don't know, E.W. Kemble, six volumes, Charles Reinhardt, three volumes, and so on. We have a vertical file with 104 drawers of ephemeral material, which is especially strong in the artist files and in the material on the Metropolitan Museum of, of Art itself. I suspect there are several places in the museum uh, accumulating material on the museum itself, the archives, uh, the public information office, uh, but the library continues to clip uh, material from uh, the papers and magazines on that. We've received a number of special libraries or collections. Uh, the first one I find recorded was given by a man named Edward Moore, who worked for the firm of Tiffany and Company. And in 1892, he gave a collection of 460 volumes on the applied arts and archaeology. There have been two gifts of, of uh, two library collections on arms and armor, one Bashford Dean, a former curator in 1929, and most recently in 1980, Stephen Grancy left his library on arms and armor. And there have been various libraries on Egyptology, classical art, decorative arts, and so on. The library, because it, it uh, for many years, was an isolated, the museum library is virtually an isolationist. The trustees had de determined that the library would be developed for to satisfy all the needs of curators as if that were the only library. So there are quite a few collections of non-art subjects which we find valuable, such as guidebooks, the Baedekers, the Guide Michelin, Touring Club Italiano. And the library has large reference collections on biography and on and the various foreign encyclopedias, such as La Russe, Italiana, Espaza, the Brock House, the Bolshoi, Bolshoi, excuse me. Although we're a working library, we have thousands of rare books. We don't say that we're a rare book library, however. The uh, rare material that is acquired by the uh, museum tends to go to the Department of Prints and Photographs, to which we will refer in a moment. 
Could we have the lights again, please? Another library that is uh, uh, almost as old as ours and of equal importance uh, is the Photograph and Slide Library in the Metropolitan. Uh, it was founded in 1907. Uh, it now tends to, the, its holdings fall into three parts, a slide collection, a study collection of photographs, and a collection of color transparencies. The quarters that it occupies are, were, uh, it, it's had a checkered career. At one point, it was in a room in the old uh, McKim-Eat and White Library, which you saw. But in uh, 1968, it moved into its present quarters, and you see here uh, a view of that slide library. Their holdings as of 1983 were 368,000 color slides, of which we're enjoying a few, 252,000 reference photographs, especially strong in photographs of architecture and archaeological subjects, 20,500 color transparencies of objects that the museum itself owns. This library handles the permissions of, for publication of uh, images of the works of art and is fully equipped. These are all slide cabinets, the, the, car, the uh, wooden drawers, and there are a number of workstations that are illuminated from behind so that people can uh, arrange their slides. This is a rear, project, rear projection viewer, which is, was useful in getting slides together of this sort. Book librarians think they have a problem. These, these are slides for the Vatican exhibition. And I think I would have just cried and gone home if I'd been faced with that. But they, they're, they're, the librarians there are quite uh, capable of dealing with all of this uh, with a minimum of sweat. And uh, it, uh, it all cleans up into something that's orderly and usable when they're finished. These are the horses of San Marco. But there are several, uh, there are at least two collections of slides that are notable. Uh, a man, uh, a photographer, and I think a movie maker named William Keeley, K-E-I-G-H-L-E-Y, has given through the years collections of color slides which he has made around the world. And between 1958 and 1973, he had given over 73,000 slides, which are incorporated in special cabinets in the slide library. There was a collection given by a man named Joseph Turner in 1974 of 93,000 slides. The study photographs cover a lot of the Alinari output, and I mentioned they have architecture and archaeology, they have decorative arts, and the photograph collection includes over 100,000 photographs of the Met's own objects. That library is open Tuesday to Friday from 10 to 4.30, and no appointment is necessary. Now, I'm treating a curatorial department as if it's a library. The prints and photographs department, this is a, uh, Stieglitz photographs of Georgia O'Keeffe. Um, the, um, as I mentioned, the rare material that comes into the library tends typically, uh, comes into the museum, tends typically to be put in the prints and photographs department, and for many years has been a working arrangement uh, between the librarian and the, and the curator. The print department, prints and photographs department, was founded in 1916. It was founded with a bequest of a man named Harris Brisbane Dick, a New York publisher, who left a collection of prints, and this was the offer the Met couldn't refuse, an endowment of a million dollars. That was fine in 1916. 
the first curator, and uh, there had been efforts to get a print department started before that. Some of the curators of the museum had been, I mean, the trustees of the museum had been interested, but uh, there was not sufficient interest in order to name a director or a curator until the, the Harris Dick collection came along, and then with, with great dispatch, the trustees and the museum administration selected a first curator, William Ivins, Jr., who was a distinguished, who has proven to be a distinguished scholar. At that time, he was a lawyer and an amateur print collector who had no art history training and no museum work experience, and he was hired as a full curator. They did take a gamble on him. Obviously, it paid off. Mr. Mr. Ivan's policy has been stated to be that a museum print collection, quote, must be like the library of a professor of literature composed of a corpus of prints in themselves distinctly works of art filled out and illustrated by many prints which have only a historical technical importance, unquote. There are a number of major collections that have come in through the print department. I'll mention four. The Harris-Brisbane Dick collection in 1916 had, was rich in Whistler prints. There were 150 Whistler prints, prints by Zorn, D.Y. Cameron, Seymour Hayden. In 1919, Junius Morgan, the nephew of J.P. Morgan, made a deal with the museum. He would sell them 127 Dura engravings, etchings, and dry points. If they would buy them, he would give them almost as many woodcuts. That gift included several blocks from which the Dura prints had been printed, so that's rather a special collection. In 1941, Felix Warburg gave what Mr. Ivins declared later to be the most important gift that has ever been received in the Department of Prints. There were 230 prints, including Schongauer and some other German and northern artists, but featuring Rembrandt. There were 40 etchings and dry points of Rembrandt in the Warburg gift. Uh, the other, I've skipped in time here, but the other uh, important gift that it was mentioned by the curator of prints, and I credit Colta Ives, who is the curator of the print department of prints and photographs, uh, for com these comments are drafted from a speech she gave at the Grolier Club some years ago. Uh, another benefactor to the uh, department or to the museum were Louise, Louisine and Henry Osborne Havemeyer. The name Havemeyer rings like a bell in the museum. In 1929, they gave a gift of 1,972 objects, including paintings, prints, drawings, sculpture, textiles, and so on. Of the 183 prints they gave, there were 34 Rembrandts, a Dura, a Van Dyck, several Claude Lorrain, among the 19th century artists in the print collection were Géricault, Corot, Marion, Whistler, Mary Cassatt, who was a personal friend of Mrs. Havemeyer, and Degas. Uh, an interesting other side to this collection, which is really rather an elite um, roster that I've been talking about, is its collection of ephemera and popular prints. And the second curator of prints, A. Hyatt Mayer, was, I think, instrumental in, in uh, strengthening these collections. They received collections of Currier and Ives. And then there was a, a gentleman named Jefferson Burdick who gave, over the years, a collection of printed ephemera, cigarette insert cards, postcards. These are mostly American. He came in he, the, with, using materials provided by the Department of Prints. Uh, Mr. Burdick would come in week after week, bringing in more things. He was a, really a compulsive collector. More things he had purchased, uh, pasted together scrapbooks which filled several stack units in the stacks of the print department. 
We also have in the print department Landauer gave to the New York Historical Society. But there were a few duplicates, and some of the American duplicates came in the Landauer collection as well. To summarize this, let me say that the, uh, the highlights of the print collection would include not only a, a survey of rare illustrated books from the 15th century to the present, with special strength in Florentine woodcuts in the 1490s and Italian and German woodcuts the 15th and 16th centuries, architecture books, for example, Vitruvius editions, drawing manuals, design books for metal workers, lace makers, cabinet makers, embroiderers, festival books, engraved views of royal festival events, and then the 19th century American trade catalogs. In addition to the ephemera from Mr. Burdick and Miss Landauer, uh, there are a number of trade catalogs. These are a manufacturer's illustrated catalogs of, good, of wares for sale. And Lawrence Romain in, the, I think, the 1950s published a guide to them, which lists many as being in the library at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But years ago, probably while Mr. Mayer was curator of prints, they were transferred into the print department, so they're now housed there. The print department has the a collection of, of uh, material from Andrew Jackson Davis, a 19th century architect, including drawings, notebooks, and papers. Uh, the collection of Ogden Codman, a late 19th century designer who I discovered happily last fall uh, when I visited Newport, Rhode Island and went to the Breakers, discovered that Ogden Codman was the designer of all the interiors, which are pretty sumptuous. But his sketches, his notes, his business papers, and a number and a collection of architectural uh, photographic studies from Codman came to the uh, museum uh, from him. There are some drawings in the print department, and I asked a curator. Uh, what the division of labor is between the prints and photographs department and the and a department I may not have mentioned yet, which is the drawings department, which was established in 1960. There are many ar older architectural drawings that are still in the, the uh, prints and photographs collection, and there are some other kinds of drawings in the print department if they turn out to have been drawings that were preparatory studies for a print. That seems to be the rule of thumb by which they divide. The print study room is open only by appointment, they're open normally Tuesday to Friday, 10 to noon, 10 to 12.30, 2 to 4.45. And they attempt to keep the number of appointments at any given time down to five, so it's a small group. Ah, the next library. That's not the print department. This is the Robert Goldwater Library in the Department of Primitive Art, which is another entirely different kind of library, but a very special kind of collection in the museum. The Goldwater Library was founded in 1957 at the, as the library of the Museum of Primitive Art down on 54th Street. In 1975, when Nelson Rockefeller negotiated with the Metropolitan for, for his museum to become a Department of Primitive Art at the Met, the library came as a departmental library. It was named in honor of Robert Goldwater and opened in 1982 in January. They have about 26,000 volumes, books and periodicals, and a separate photograph study collection which is not duplicated in the photograph and slide library of 120,000 photographs of the art of Africa, Oceania, and indigenous America, pre-Columbian American and American Indians of the present. Uh, there are great strengths in the library. Well, the uh, great strengths are covered in West Africa, pre-Columbian Mexico and Peru, and in New Guinea. Uh, a number of libraries have come to that library, including the libraries of Nelson Rockefeller, 
Rene Darnoncourt, who was, was affiliated with the Museum of Modern Art for many years, Robert Goldwater, and Paul Gebauer. Theirs is a very special anthropology uh, library. Uh, the dictionary has been published by J.K. Hall in four volumes. It's a classified arrangement uh, rather than an alphabetical dictionary catalog. It's open uh, Tuesday through Fridays from 1 to 4.45. No appointment is necessary. I apologize for not having installation views or uh, views of the libraries that we're talking about now. I discovered when I went to the slide library that the, the Watson Library did pretty well, and the slide library, slide and photograph library, is admirably represented in their slide collection, <laughs> but no views of the Robert Goldwater Library or the next library. So I'm, give, I'm copying out and showing you artifacts in lieu. The Costume Institute Library. I mentioned that the Costume Institute came to the Metropolitan in 1946. That institute was founded in 1937 by a lady named Irene Lewison and other theater-oriented people. It is now called the Irene Lewison Costume Reference Library. It contains 50,000 items. It's a, essentially a one-person library. It contains 50,000 items, including books and periodicals on costume and textiles, uh, fashion plates, a few costume sketches with swatches attached, pattern books, photographs, clippings. They have partial runs of, of journals that are important in costumes, such as the Gazette du Bon Temps, which, with, and, or the Gazette du Bon Genre, which were published in the teens and 20s, I think, and which have those superb pochoir uh, illustrate, color illustrations. They have, among their special collections, is a collection of fashion sketches which came from Bergdorf, Good, Bergdorf Goodman. There are a few sketches in that collection from 1910, but the bulk of that is from the 1920s through the 1940s. I think they have a small collection of Yves Saint Laurent sketches, conceivably after the Yves Saint Laurent exhibition, which has been there now in the Costume Institute for months, they may get more. It, the library is used by staff, and it's used by theater designers and costume designers. It's open by appointment Tuesday through Friday. This is familiar. 10 to 1, 2 to 4.45. Everybody has to close for lunch except the Watson Library and the uh, uh, Slide and Photograph Library. Back to the Cloisters. Their library is a one-person library, and it's a relatively small one. It's a great place, though. The library was founded in 1938. It is a one-person library on medieval art, and I would repeat that there is a department of medieval art in the main building of which the Cloisters is a, a sub-department or a unit. And um, I suspect that the great strength in their library, which is 6,500 volumes, is literature on stained glass, as well as herbals and facsimiles of manuscripts. That library is open by appointment. Back to the Central Park location. This is another view of the Robert Lehman collection, which, as I believe I mentioned before, is a museum within the museum. Their collections range from the 13th to the 20th century. Uh, the library is about 9,000 volumes and is available by appointment only. The library has strength in Western European art with great emphasis on the art of Siena, on old master drawings, and on the Renaissance. There is archival material located there. Uh, which pertains, I assume, I didn't verify this, uh, pertains to the Robert Lehman collection itself. I might mention that the, what the Lehman collection was another of those that came intact into the museum. It includes a large collection of drawings, uh, which are another study collection of, in great depth.
Excuse me. I think I have, I, I don't know if I've worn you down, I'm about to wear me down, but I think we, we've come uh, pretty much through the, uh, the range. I think I have, I hope I've succeeded in suggesting to you that the, the richness of a museum like this. Uh, I mentioned briefly the drawings department, uh, which is a separate curatorial department, which has a study room, which is open by appointment. Uh, a part of the museum, a research resource that is not advertised, and I shouldn't even be talking about it probably, is the museum's archives. Uh, you can imagine that a museum of the size and age of the Metropolitan Museum uh, would have a great deal of history in its papers. The archives is located uh, in the administration wing and is actually a physically a small um, repository, relatively small. Much of the archival material is probably located in the various curatorial offices. The, ar the archives itself concentrates on documenting uh, the acquisition of works of art, in other words, deeds of gift or letters of transmittal, uh, the, the uh, working mechanics of the museum itself, but very narrowly defined, not so broadly defined as archives are in other institutions. The archives, uh, as I said, does not advertise itself. It, it is there upon application for people who are doing research that pertains to the museum or to its collections, especially the works of art in relation to the collections that they might be in. Uh, the, there are the, those 20 to 24 departmental libraries that I mentioned. We've seen some of them. Uh, many of those are simply working libraries that have uh, no librarian in charge and are normally not available to the outside researcher, although I know in some departments, if a curator has been approached by someone with a question for information, the curator will uh, uh, use uh, the departmental library and make the departmental library accessible to that person during the visit. But it's a, it's a consultation uh, that is of a different uh, matter, and I think the specialist can always get to that kind of material. The last... Uh, department that I will mention is, uh, we, I mentioned the, the educators, the curators as one of our constituency, the educational programs of the museum are so large that it, the department is divided into four parts. In uh, 1980 or 81 or 82, I think, uh, um, Mr. Uris, and I've lost his first name, Ruth and, is it Robert Uris? Harold, thank you. Ruth and Harold Uris. Uh, center uh, for Education was endowed. Ah, it's there on the slide, isn't it? Thank you. <laughs> uh, this is the Information Center on the slide, and I bring this up because uh, this points to an aspect of library collections and library service that we've not talked about at all before. Uh, of necessity, the users, the use of the libraries, uh, particularly, I'll speak for the Watson Library, it's the one I know best, uh, is restricted. Undergraduate students and high school students are not normally admitted unless there is uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, reason for them to be admitted uh, because uh, the use of the library is, is uh, heavy enough and we could not satisfy that constituency. The education department has a library and resource center which is, uh, which is undergoing a study now which may in the near future be a fill the gap that, that the research libraries and the very specialized collections have created. It will be a popular library 
ideally with the, li the literature of all the collections, in other words, all the museums on publications and related publications uh, to which high school students, the layman, college undergraduates working on a term paper can go and get the, uh, the material that is germane to that research. Uh, it will be a friendly, user-friendly library, uh, which uh, will take uh, a, a different part of the possible library constituency. It's, I think, the reverse of the special collection, but it's something that a need is seen for and is something that we hope will come within the next few years. Thank you.